This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am the author of Mindframe, and I am the host of the chapters, David Moten. And with me, as always, is Brent Van Tassel, who serves as producer extraordinaire and my partner in all things Mindframe. For chapter six, we're going to revisit the story of Josephine, who was first seen in chapter one. As a reminder, in chapter one, we first met Josephine as she was living in the Old Dame, the hotel that she and her deceased husband owned, and she was grieving his loss, and she was trying to uh, find a new sense of self and survive alone on the mountain with her dogs, with only her friend Teddy to occasionally show up for support. So hopefully uh, that is still retained in your brain, and you will be able to dive in to see what Josephine is up to in her second installment here in Chapter 6. If you have questions about Josephine, about what's going on, you're probably not alone. And we ask some of those questions ourselves and answer some and theorize about it in the sit-down episodes, which are exclusives to patrons. And if you're interested, you can go to patreon.com backslash mindframepodcast. If you select the tier that has the sit-down episodes, you'll hear us every week as we uh, theorize. I often won't theorize. I'll be quiet. But Zach and Brent will theorize and talk and, and uh, answer questions about the show. Also, we are a Podbelly original, so if you are curious about podcasting on your own, whether it's some fiction that you've been writing, whether it's a content-based, an interview show, anything at all, uh, you can go to podbelly.com and find out some educational content, get some ideas for what tech you should be using, and even download some other great podcasts that you can listen to. So without further ado, let's get back into the world of Josephine and the Old Dame here on Mindframe Podcast. Chapter 6, Josephine, circa 2011. Josephine wiggled the mouse and brought her laptop to life. The moonless night was as dark as she imagined it would be. Darker, maybe, since clouds had swept in low from the east and blotted out the stars. She was logging in to check her email, and in the pause of a slow boot, staring out into the night. A few weeks ago, Teddy had helped her move an antique roll-top desk from down in the old switchboard room up to her bedroom. It sat under the window, which wasn't a window until today. It had been a sheet of particle board screwed to the wall where a pane of glass used to be until it had been broken by extreme heat or a volunteer firefighter trying to specify airflow. Either way, there was glass there again. A window. She'd have a perfect view of Lake Akunga whenever the sun decided to come up. But in the meantime, and as a result of the consummate darkness outside, the window she faced acted as a mirror. In it, Josephine saw her reflection, hair gone wild, blue overalls covered in meteors of dried quickset, and a paint-spattered muscle tee. She looked skinny to herself, wild, a creature of solitude roaming alone, not a woman who once lived lavishly thanks to Guillermo's wealth, attending operas and parties held by affluent landowners wearing the Tiffany jewelry now resting unused in her safe. She posed to see herself better. Her cheeks looked good, thin, making her bones stand out more like women in magazines who didn't exist anywhere in the real world. And her arms were well-defined, buff even after all the work she'd been doing since the fire. She thought she looked younger than she did a year ago, all the softness of her mid-thirties dissolved by hard work and tragedy. Joe pulled her hair back, just to see how it looked in the reflection. But her tress was wild with humidity and lack of washing, so she gave up. She needed a shower. Joe slowly realized that it wasn't a mirror she was looking in. It was the window. Out there in the unspoiled blackness, someone could be watching her, 
seeing her every motion, her adjustment of hair, her pet of dog, but in here she could only see a reflection of herself. A mirror seemed a lie if one side could see through it. She wanted only one truth, one view. She felt suddenly and profoundly disturbed. The isolation she normally felt up on the mountain was gone thanks to a phantom prowler who logically was not sitting outside looking up at her, but tell that to her animal brain. Curtains. She needed curtains. She stretched her body across the desk that sat before the window and placed her nose against the pane, cupping her hand around her eyes to try to insulate the light. She was on the third story and tried to see the ground to see if someone could be down there. Instead, she saw a view of the endless, indiscernible darkness of a deep, moonless mountain night. The density of such blackness would overwhelm her at times. The depths of it would feel all-pervasive. She used to lean on Guillermo on nights like this when they took a walk to look at the unadulterated stars. Now, though, she had no one to lean on. Josephine would often feel like a ship adrift at night, a great hulk lumbering through a passive sea with no stars or lighthouse to guide her by. She wanted to navigate and move forward. A ship shouldn't care if it's day or night. But she couldn't advance, had no skills to navigate the new type of darkness she found herself in. Josephine's intellect had conquered the vacancy left by Guillermo. He was dead. She needed to move on. The rational part of her mind knew this and urged the emotional rest of her to move on as well, to sail through the night without fear of reefs or running aground. But some instinctual, emotional, girlish part of her couldn't quite get past Guillermo. That part anchored her. It made her afraid to move, not in any meaningful way, without her captain. So she often lived in the dead past, wishing through long nights that there was again someone at the helm. She felt like her emotions had their own set of memories, rooted more deeply in her lizard brain. They'd come out from time to time, without the rest of her noticing. For example, Josephine hated ham. She loved pigs and thought them to be sweet and smart and couldn't fathom eating one, making it die. But Guillermo loved it. Ham was his favorite food on earth. So when Joe would drive down the hill to Fikes to buy food for their little private kitchen, she'd sometimes buy half a pound of sliced ham from the deli as a treat for Guillermo. The problem was, now, a year after his death, she'd get home from Fikes and pull out a small package wrapped in white butcher's paper and realize some distant part of her bought ham. Some part of her waiting in line at the deli counter, made small talk, ordered, watched it get wrapped in paper, and then purchased it. Ham. For Guillermo. Just when she thought she was buoyant, could float over the memories of him and his death, her emotional core anchored her in sediment. And right there in the kitchen, she'd fall apart. Joe had done this three times, the unconscious acquisition of ham, and each time she ended up weeping on the hardwood floor, surrounded by two dogs very interested in why their mom was crying and why there was a package of ham in her lap. She'd give it to them right there, a quarter pound each to be done with it. She had six cans of Barbasol, a shelf packed of green tea. She was a coffee drinker herself, but Guillermo would come to enjoy tea while he was in the Navy. And several packs of Corona Light, which she thought tasted like piss. Cold piss when it was cold. All were things she bought for him out of habit, the shopping list of the dead, still echoing in her soul. Years back, as Joe and Guillermo sat over green tea and scones to discuss their pending marriage, Guillermo's pastor told them about what he called different languages of love. This was back in the city, where even the holy men had well-appointed offices. The pastor told them everyone had different ways to express love. The best couples either spoke the same language or came to appreciate how the other one spoke. 
how he or she expressed love and needed love expressed. Josephine, it turned out, was a doer. To prove her love, she did things for people. She baked, she cooked dinner, she cleaned up. She put away shoes and completed a million other domestic tasks that nobody in their right mind ever wanted to do. She did them as a way to ease the burden for the other person, to show that she loved them by sacrificing and doing. That language, she assumed, was part of her current problem. She loved Guillermo still, loved his ghost anyway, yet she had nothing to do to prove it. There were no tasks, critical or mundane, she could do for him since he was gone, and this added to the vacancy she couldn't fill. Jo never did things for herself. She never shopped for herself, cooked for herself, or cleaned for herself. Without Guillermo as the impetus, their apartment in the corner of the old dame fell to disarray. The cupboards grew bare, and Jo ate seldom, never registering her own hunger until she reached some blood sugar crisis. The dogs were spoiled as a consequence of Jo's need to do, but there was no human left for her to serve, to love, to express to. She realized she had been crying and looked at the mirror to see what it did to her makeup. Two realizations there. One, she hadn't worn makeup in months. Two, again, it was not a mirror. It was a creepy window reflecting her in the blackness. Curtains. She'd been here before. Josephine walked up the hall. In the lake suite, which sat next door to her apartment, Teddy had stored the interior painting supplies, including a mound of fabric tarps. She grabbed an unused one still crisp with a factory fold. It was to be her curtain. The fittings, her screws. She snagged an electric drill from where it was charging and scooped a jagged handful of drywall screws from the crate. She tried to drill the first screw straight through the fabric, but the tarp bunched up and spun around like a muslin cyclone. She undid it and set the tarp on the floor, where Porthos instantly adopted it as a bed to dig on. She sunk a line of screws into the wall, shooed Porthos off the fabric, and made notches in the tarp with a box cutter to line up with the screws. It hung nicely that way. Once she had the tarp in place, the canvas proved too heavy and started to strain the holes, so she cut the bottom half off with the box cutter just under the windowsill to lessen the weight. Josephine sat on the bed to examine her handiwork. Teddy would talk shit about this whenever he came up next. It wasn't pretty, but it kept the boogeyman from looking into her bedroom. Once the curtain was hung, she stood holding the drill and remembered her two frames she'd been meaning to hang. Two quick screws, one on either side of the window, and the wall was ready. She only had two things she'd cared about hanging as a decoration. Up until now, they were sitting on a dresser or a box or the new desk based on her mood. She hung one and then the other and stood back to look at them after the gentle dance of pokes and prods that it took to get them level. They were both framed magazines with covers that were important to her and to Guillermo. The one she hung on the left of the window was a local magazine called The Mountain Muse that was bundled with Sunday newspapers once a month. It tended to be filled with ads for dentists, wine tours, and cosmetic surgeons and contained primarily feel-good pieces about local mountain communities. This particular issue featured a story on the grand opening of the dame as a B&B &B when Joe and Guillermo first restored it. The cover of the magazine was a shot of the dame, in a verdant spring, flowers blooming, she and Guillermo hugging at the waist on the front dining porch. The second magazine, now hanging on the right of the window, was an issue of Realtor, a magazine that focused on the National Association of Realtors. On the cover was Guillermo's corporate logo, a silver triangle on a black background, but the top of the pyramid was replaced with a capital Q that was stylized and a bit oblong. The Q stood for Quantivus, 
the name of Guillermo and Alfie's real estate firm. Below the logo, the caption read, Ethical Investing. You will know this logo soon. Quantivis made the cover for bold investments, purchases, and sales in Chicago, New York, and Boston that helped nonprofits and established low-income housing in middle-class neighborhoods. The magazine wanted a picture of Guillermo or his sales crew, but he refused. The logo was what mattered. The entire corporation was important, all the way down to the janitors, not just the sales team. Isn't that better? Joe asked the dogs. She set the drill on the desk and turned to see only Porthos. A few seconds later, prompted by her voice, Muffet came sulking back in the bedroom. He hated power tools and ran for the soft white rug in the master bathroom whenever she turned one on at night. By day, they didn't disturb him for some reason, but at night, he turned into a coward. Porthos never cared. Sorry, Muffet. Poor old chicken. Come here. Come here, Joe said with a pat on her bed. He tentatively wagged his tail and sniffed the air, looking at the vile electric drill where it lay on the desk, dead. After the promise of much pets, he agreed and hopped up on the bed. She scratched Muffet on the head, though anywhere would do for him, and rubbed Porthos on her pink belly. They made noises that sound more gremlin than dog, high-pitched whines of pure pleasure. When Josephine would stop her administrations, the two dogs would lick and wag to entice her again. She had loved her dogs plenty a year ago, but in the empty dame, she had come to adore them in depths that made her often feel foolish. After a few minutes of loves, the two were closing their eyes and breathing through their noses in heavy somnambulistic gouts. Muffet and Porthos seemed to get more pooped out from a day of construction than Joe did. Having banished the window and restored her fourth wall, Joe remembered that she was sitting down to get online. Next to her laptop sat her makeshift dinner slash lunch. As usual, she had forgotten to eat since breakfast, and her blood sugar and hormones were just now letting her know. Josephine tucked into an out-of-season peach, a white, hard, flavorless thing with a small pit. It was paired with sea salt-dusted water crackers, her last three-ounce single-serving pack of hummus, and a generous wedge of smoky hardjack cheese. The cheese crumbled like a mineral under the weight of an antique silver butter knife, part of a stash she and Guillermo found in a wooden box buried in the root cellar under the dame's industrial kitchen. She shook her pill bottle to judge how many tablets she had left. Plenty, it turned out. Joe fiddled with the idiot-proof cap and flicked one pill out, an oblong thing, innocent if not for its potency. She swallowed it with a burst of mineral water. The way her mind was revving tonight, mirrors and ghosts and all, she knew she wouldn't sleep without a pill. It should kick in just about the time her fruit plate was on the ground being licked by dogs, recently roused by the routine of the pill bottle. The dogs deduced a pattern. A late dinner was coming, and with that, crumbs and scraps. Muffet and Porthos sat vigilantly near her office chair. They knew there was a three-foot no-fly zone immediately around Josephine. So they stayed back and sat on the rug Joe brought up from the lobby to spruce the place up a bit. Rotating between the fruit, cheese, and crackers, Joe strategically let large crumbs fall from her hand now and then for Muffet and Porthos. The pups would dart in, trying to be agile more than sly, and grab what they could, sneaking back to the rug before they'd attempt to chew or swallow. All three parties were happy with the arrangement. Josephine read the latest volley in a series of messages between her and Uncle Alfie. The final details to the travel plan had been worked out. Guillermo's niece, Clarabelle, had recently been in touch with Alfie. She spent years living in one of Uncle Alfie's typically empty apartments while she attended a private high school academy in the city. 
That was some time ago now. Clarabelle had just made it back to the States, and she was going to visit the old dame in less than a week. Joe had never met Clarabelle, but she was always Guillermo's favorite niece, and Alfie adored her. Clarabelle had just gotten done doing a year of volunteer work for a house-building charity called Offense to Mend in Brazil and in Southern California. She didn't want to go back to college just yet, had no job or money, and Alfie had convinced her to come up to the mountain and help with restoring the old dame for the winter, putting her new construction skills to use for the family. Joe agreed to have Clarabelle come, not because she wanted the company or the help, but because Uncle Alfie was impossible to refuse. Plus, her old uncle promised to fly out with Clarabelle and spend a week here before the snows set in. Josephine thought that a visit from Alfie and a stranger living here in the Dame, no matter how transitionally, might just keep Guillermo quiet at night. The pills did their thing, and Josephine felt an urgency to get into her bed. She would be asleep in the next five minutes wherever she happened to be at the time. She reached up and opened the window a half an inch to remember what it was like to let some air in here, shut the laptop, stood with a wobble, and staggered across the bedroom to the large canopy bed. It felt empty. She called the dogs who one by one wanted a blanket more than a chance for crumbs. The three of them snuggled under the down comforter, and before Josephine could find a pillow to put under her head, she was asleep, and she dreamed of the war. After four consecutive nights laying awake, four nights of playing fruitless counting games, practicing her Buddha belly breathing, nestling with the dogs to try to drain their pure heavenly sleep from them through the osmosis of body heat, watching LCD minutes swing slowly by at a gallows pace, Josephine finally got a good night's sleep. It was the first night of the hard snow, and since her window was open a crack, she could hear the little wet taps the snow made as it landed on top of itself like fairies kissing. The sound coupled with a strange binary effect of cold coming from the open window and warmth coming from the space heater turned to a full angry red, like the room was wearing vintage 3D glasses. The ambient put her out, as it always did, but some combination of the other elements of the room finally let Joe sleep without waking up to a night terror at 3am. Even so, the dreams were bad ones, much worse than laying awake listening to the fairies kiss. They were the aerial dreams, the dreams of dogfights and mid-air collisions, the dreams of the war that never happened. The start of the dream almost made its inevitably bad ending worth it, because in it, she was back with Guillermo, a beautiful, living Guillermo, on vacation somewhere tall, skyscrapers and a large port, the ocean hugging the city. New York, she'd guess, or Chicago. It was early autumn. They drank hot chocolate from a street vendor and passed another selling fresh pretzels. They split one, and the salt from the snack married with the chocolate from the drink, and they were in gustatory heaven. Guillermo wore the black scarf Joe knit for him along with some riff on a newsy hat, and he hadn't shaved in a couple days, just like she liked him. The crowd, shopping and bustling and crowding, suddenly moved in unison, like a school of frightened fish. Everyone looked in the same direction, crouched simultaneously, pointed up, gasped. There was a helicopter, two, three of them, Military ones with engines so loud their roar felt like they came from Joe's chest, not the air above her. A fourth flew by, sleek and black with a symbol of some unknown air force embossed on its tail. It opened fire, a disgorge of flame as two cannons pelted molten shells forward. They passed through the glass of a building, struck their mark, a fighter plane on the other side. The plane careened, engine on fire, 
and it ducked behind the endless maze of towers. There was a rumble in the ground, a horrible sound, a ball of fire in the distance as the jet crashed into something, likely a building, some blocks away. Then a new thing appeared in the sky, a craft or a being or a miniaturized storm cloud. It pulsed and varied in its shape like a squid, but it was metallic and black, ranging in size from a VW to a city bus. Joe thought she heard a faint clicking emanate from it as it morphed its shape and seemed to swim through the air. The squid hovered lazily above the skyline, defeating gravity in some novel way that jets and rotors couldn't afford, and it belched several arms of jagged blue electricity that did something to the helicopters. They lost power, spun like dreidels, hitting each other, buildings, crowds of screaming people churning in the propellers. People were running toward the waterfront, attempting to get away from falling glass and metal. Josephine looked in that direction, but the water was churning. It started to glow red and boil as a gigantic thing, something she'd call an organic machine, rose from the depths. Its glow from inside and its skin was the red of an engorged mosquito. Blood-red tentacles rose from the sides of this giant, bulbous monstrosity as it rose one story into the air, then two, then three. It must have been the size of an aircraft carrier. Guillermo stood and grabbed Joe's hand, wanting to run. The subway, he screamed. We've got to get to the subway. Instead of rising in fear, darting along with all the other fish in the school, Joe just watched the copters crash and explode. It was actually beautiful, almost choreographed in its violence. As soon as the vehicle started to rain from the heavens, Josephine knew. It was a dream. This would never happen in real life. There was no such war. There were no blue energy weapons or flying giant squids. There were no ship-sized blood beings swimming in the river. And even if those things existed, weren't they on our side? Josephine knew she went to sleep in the old dame, and that's where she was now. It was snowing tonight, and Guillermo was dead. Joe often dreamed of falling aircraft, so at that instant of realization, knowing this was a facade, she woke up in the real world. The sun was starting to peek through the tarp, and she could see a slight bit of snow on the hardwood floor. The bedroom was muggy and warm, the heater having won the battle for climate control over the snow. Josephine turned over in the bed, felt with her cold arm that last night's Guillermo was only a dream. Then, she was greeted by the licks and singing of Muffet and Porthos. Porthos was first to get to Josephine since he was sleeping on top of the covers where the heater hit the bed. She licked Joe, her not-so-subtle way of insisting Joe get her ass up and make some breakfast, as Muffet slowly crawled his way out from under the comforter. The little man made his dramatic exit, tail wrapping a beat on the pillow. Joe had to pee and clean up the snow, but the dogs came first. She slipped next door to the kitchen, scooped kibble into their bowls, and topped off their water with some nearly icy stuff from the tap. They intently set to munching as Joe cleaned up the snow with some dirty clothes lying on the floor of the bathroom, shut the window, and tried to make herself some breakfast. She had enough cereal left for a bowl, but only powdered milk. She had a can of pears and some ramen noodles and not much else. Flour and sugar and two frozen Cornish game hens, which were only there for Guillermo. Joe checked the calendar. The food delivery was due three days ago, but never came. She took her cereal to her desk, unhung the tarp and forced some stale cereal and reconstituted milk into her mouth, made some coffee, which too was running low. While she ate, Josephine looked down over the lake. It wasn't frozen yet, as was evidenced by a few cold fools on the water doing some morning fishing. 
Their boats drifted here and there, soon to be replaced with ice fishing shacks. Snow filled the world and looked like it was finally here to stay for the season. Josephine finished her week breakfast, set her bowl in the sink, unplugged her cell phone from the charging cable, and rained Mr. Fike. He issued extended apologies that he had failed to call her, the truck lost an axle and the delivery boy quit so it would be at least a week before they could deliver again. He explained that he tried to call everyone who got deliveries and somehow she was overlooked. No problem, she said, though it was a huge problem, and Fike promised to waive the delivery fee next month and to call as soon as service was up again. In the quiet distance of the mountain, Joe heard the plows moving through the winding roads. This was a good sign. She could drive down to town and get the food herself since the roads were open. Tying up her hair in a bun, Joe sniffed through some sweatshirts for one that didn't stink of construction. She found one, Guillermo's navy sweatshirt, and some jeans. She put on socks thin enough to fit in her boots, went downstairs, and grabbed her jacket. I'll be back, pups. I'm just going to get some supplies. I'll be home before you know it. Don't go out there. You'll get lost in the snow. The dogs looked at her. Porthos with sadness and confusion, waiting desperately to come along. Muffet giving up the fight and heading upstairs to hide under the comforter again. Josephine walked to the large parking structure. It was a three-walled, deep garage with no front doors. It could hold about a dozen vehicles, and the back wall was filled with tools and repair stations. She decided on the truck since it would haul the most food back up. The truck was slow to turn over, but finally started. Joe ran the heat, though at the moment it was icier than air conditioning, and let the engine get warmed up. While she sat idling, only cold air blew through the vents, but Joe started to sweat. For some reason, it was hard to breathe in this truck. She felt boxed in, like the snow had sucked all the oxygen from the world outside. Her breath couldn't quite fill up her lungs, so she took more of them, shallow things, inefficient. The air seemed thin, or her lungs weak. The smell of exhaust hit her, and with it mixed the scent of pine and made her think of her allergies. Josephine felt pressure in her chest, as if her heart was expanding and going to burst right there inside of her ribcage. She wanted to dig it out with her fingernails, poke a hole through her sternum just to relieve the pressure. She pictured driving down the mountain, and for some reason, it felt like she'd be utterly alone out there, floating in space, no lifeline between her and safety. Her home. The dame was home. She didn't want to leave. She couldn't leave. Muffet and Porthos and a fire in the big fireplace. That's what she needed. Just the thought of it made her breathing fall more regularly. The engine of her pickup droned on, more terrifying than the roll of the crashing jets from her dream. In her panic, she had hit a switch, and the windshield wipers squeaked on dry windows, an eerie sound. Going down that mountain was like being ejected out of an airlock, being set adrift on an ice floe. She just couldn't do it. Her skin was alive with pain, as if the cotton of Guillermo's sweatshirt had been sinisterly replaced with a thousand, thousand needles pricking her skin. Josephine killed the ignition, grabbed her keys, and nearly sprinted back to the dame. She staggered in the door, Porthos thrilled that she had changed her mind. Josephine laid on one of the couches in the hotel's main lobby and breathed as Porthos licked her. Some strange amount of time passed, and eventually she was dragging full healthy breaths, and her ears quit ringing, which she didn't know they had been. Her shirt was drenched in sweat, and she was so weak she was shaking. Muffet joined Joe and Porthos somewhere during her episode and was lying next to Joe's torso when she was finally lucid again. She was thirsty and exhausted, and her wet boots had made a mess on the couch. 
She stumbled upstairs, drank some frigid tap water, and then ate dry ramen like a snack cake while laying in bed, just in case some of the attack had to do with blood sugar and not eating enough. She needed Guillermo. She needed help. She never used to be like this. She at least needed food anyway. Josephine took her phone from her pocket and texted Teddy. There was no one else in her life except Uncle Alfie, and he wouldn't be here for days. So she typed, No food up here. Delivery down for a month. When you coming next? Could use some help. He texted back almost immediately. Can be there in two hours. Send me a list. She replied, If you go to Fikes up the mountain, they have my order on file. You are a lifesaver. Again, instantly, no worries, Joe. Laying on the bed, she took a photo of what she called her ghetto curtain. She sent it to Teddy along with the message, Mars needs curtains. They said that about all sorts of things, referencing old sci-fi in which Mars needed women, Mars needs drywall, Mars needs deck screws, Mars needs Budweiser. Ha ha, Teddy replied, I'm on the case. Josephine checked her phone's calendar. Nine more days before Uncle Alfie got here. Thank God. Joe realized she was wrong when she emailed Alfie, making it sound like she was fine up here alone. She was lying. She needed Alfie. She needed Teddy. She thought of Clarabelle, a complete stranger but family, and her company up on the mountain all winter, and it rounded Josephine out. She needed Clarabelle, maybe most of all. Another girl, a feminine presence, someone she could equally share this place with. Josephine changed into dry clothes and decided to lay some tile in the Isabella suite until Teddy, Manny, and Junior and food arrived. Muffet and Porthos came along for lack of anything better to do. Josephine wasn't strong enough to make it alone up on the mountain all winter. She spent the entire past year alone. She couldn't do it again. The tough exterior was just a facade. Josephine's insides were a smoldering wreck. She was incomplete. But when the dame was repaired, when Clarabelle was here, when Joe got new direction and wisdom from Alfie, all the ghosts and all the war dreams would be defeated. So the story of Josephine continues. Um, the mystery may have deepened. And as always, we do a thorough discussion of all of the chapters in our sit-down episodes. And you can get those by going to patreon.com. If you sign up at the proper level, you will be able to get access to those sit-down episodes and hear us uh, theorize about what may be happening. And it's not just talking about the content. Zach asks some interesting questions about writing process and everything else uh, that might have to do with uh, my writing style, what music I might listen to, et cetera, while I'm writing a chapter. So if any of that writing process stuff, if that's interesting to you as a writer or as a, a, a consumer, of science fiction, then those might be good for you. Also, we are a Podbelly original, and if you go to podbelly.com, you can find educational content, and you can also find some uh, good podcasts to listen to, such as Hillbilly Horror Stories and Robots for Eyes. You can find those, as well as the Sofa King podcast, which is the podcast done by myself, Brent Van Tassel, and Brad Taylor. We've hit over 500 episodes. We've got a very great uh, uh support group that talks about us and supports us and so forth if you get on Facebook and find the unofficial group. But if you just track down that, we do research, we talk about things that is definitely not safe for work. We tell a lot of uh, bad jokes and do a lot of bad research, but it's a lot of good fun. So check that out if you want to. And um, 
go to mindframepodcast.com. You can find uh, my other books, starting with 181 Pine, and you can find Zach's books uh, on there as well. And you can get merch, uh, T-shirts, coffee mugs, hats, all all the great mindframe stuff that you're craving. So as always, check that out. And remember, the lariat is closing. <laughs>